All right, so I am going to be talking about the last real article that I had in Jacobin. Um, I've been, you know, for various reasons the last few weeks, something, nothing new has come out, although there's going to be a new article on Monday, uh, which is going to be about uh, Project Veritas and the inconsistency between uh, its alleged support for free speech and... Uh, it's demonization of teachers' unions and attempts to weaken teacher tenure, and a little bit about the debate that I had with James O'Keefe and Tulsi Gabbard and um, and Tim Pool. Um, so that's coming out on Monday. Uh, and uh, a little while ago, when Roe v. Wade came out, you know, was uh, officially overturned by the Supreme Court, I had a conversation with um, uh, Lillian Sakarchia. And the transcript of that came out as a Jacobin article. And since then, I had um, I also participated in Jacobin put out this like summer reading list, and you know, so I contributed a little couple hundred word thing to that about uh, American Pastoral by Philip Roth. But the last real article I had in Jacobin was called "Karl Marx Was Right: Workers Are Systematically Exploited Under Capitalism." Um, and that's what I wanted to talk about today. I thought it might be fun for a couple of reasons to do a quick episode about this article. Um, one, I'm about to start. I'm about about to restart uh, the class that I've been teaching on uh, Capital Volume One. Um, the School for Social and Cultural Change is is um, you know on a break, right? They would normally do a July August session, but uh, they're retooling some things. They're probably not going to be back until I think like. October. So uh, we're just continuing the class through my Patreon. Uh, you know, so we're, we're up to chapter 12 at this point. So that's actually restarting tomorrow. So this is a little bit of a warm up for me getting back into that zone of thinking about uh, the kinds of things that Marx is talking about in Capital Volume 1. I also thought it would be good because we're actually doing three episodes this weekend. Uh, the one that we did yesterday. Um, was about my Daily Beast article about the Texas Republican Party and the massive contradiction between the populist rebranding that's been attempted by people like Texas uh, Senator Ted Cruz and what the Texas GOP is actually calling for in this like blood curdling state platform where, you know, the way I put it there is, you know, they're um, calling for every possible pro corporate and anti worker measure short of reinstituting child labor and coal mines or giving bosses the right of prima nocta. So uh, that's obviously a very straightforward kind of politics of the moment uh, article and Colin episode. And then the one we're doing tomorrow is basically along the same lines. We're going to do one tomorrow at five Eastern with my very good friend and comrade and collaborator, David Griscom uh, about his debut article in Jacobin, actually. Uh, so he just had his first Jacobin article come out, which is about climate politics in Texas. So I thought that in between those two, it would be fun and interesting to, to do an episode that was, you know, a little bit more abstract and theoretical, you know, because that's obviously also stuff that I'm interested in and that I know a lot of people who listen to the show are interested in. Uh, and I've been meaning to, since this article came out, I've been meaning to do a call-in episode about it. There was never a, you know, there was never a particularly good time, uh, but um, this seems like as good a time as any since I'm going to, you know, try to pack a few episodes into this weekend. 
so the first thing I talk about, so I'm just going to do this like I did the episode yesterday and like I've done some other episodes in the past where I'm talking about an article where I kind of talk through the article for a while and then if anybody's in the queue, I'll take a few questions at the end of the episode. Um, probably not going to go too terribly long today because I still need to write, um, which uh, so the thing I'm working on right now is a article for Current Affairs magazine about uh, Crystal Ball's recent encounter with Bill Maher. So, again, very fun, very different uh, from uh, from this. And I'm like two-thirds of the way through, and I'm hoping to finish that up today and then maybe watch a movie tonight. Uh, also my turn to cook. So, uh, like I said, not going to keep this going for too terribly long, but, you know, have a respectable-sized episode, at least like 30 or 40 minutes. So, first thing I talk about at the beginning of the article um, is something that I... J- just stumbled on a while back. I, um, I've actually seen other people quote this since, but you know, I, I just actually found this on the Marxist Internet Archive. I was just browsing around one day, this sort of date index of uh, Marx's writings, and I found this. Uh, well, it's called a confession, but it's a popular kind of uh, like questionnaire. Right, it's almost like a Facebook quiz or something. Although that's itself a dated reference in uh, Victorian England. Uh, that uh, Karl Marx filled out in 1865, which is fun in a lot of ways, right? You know, he, um, you know, he says, uh, you know, he says what his favorite uh, color is. Of course, it's red. Uh, he says what his favorite food is, which is uh, fish. He lists his favorite names, which are Jenny and Laura, not very coincidentally the names of his wife and daughter. Um, I thought it was very funny that he left the line for figure in history you dislike the most blank. Uh, my speculation in the articles that he must have probably just had trouble uh, narrowing down that particular list. And uh, he listed two names for your hero. And I thought those two names kind of said a lot about how Marx conceives of his project in Capital and elsewhere. Because uh, the two names were Johannes Kepler and Spartacus. So Kepler, um, you know, if you um, know a little bit about the history of astronomy, um, you know, I remember this being a big deal in Tim McGrew's History and Philosophy of Science class when I was a grad student at uh, Western Michigan. Uh, the the thing that was the big deal about Kepler is that, you know, he's essentially um, unified the study of what goes on in the heavens, which had really been thought of as a separate sphere, into just mundane physics by discovering laws of planetary motion. And obviously Spartacus led a slave revolt. So um, put this together you know, these two threads together. And I think it helps you understand like what, um, Marx's collaborator Ingalls, uh, called scientific socialism, right. As you know, that was Ingalls's name for their common project. Where to do to Ingalls's pamphlet, uh, socialism, utopianism and scientific. I've actually been thinking about that pamphlet a lot more lately. But uh, put that aside for a second, right? So um, the suggestion, right, which is inspired by what, how G.A. Cohen interprets that phrase in the um, preface to his wonderful book, Karl Marx's Theory of History, uh, which I taught a previous class on, uh, is that, you know, what does he mean, right? What does Ingalls mean when he calls, refers to what we would think of as Marxism as, as scientific socialism? In what sense is it a science? Right. Well, if he means that, like, 
somehow social science can tell you you should be a socialist, right? You should desire socialism. Then that would just be silly, right? Then scientific socialism would be pretty dumb because, you know, the fact-value distinction, right? That um, investigations into empirical facts by themselves can't tell you which normative goals you should care about. I think a better way to understand it is that it's something like a engineering science. Um, in other words, you start out with some goals, and it's uh, the same way that you do, again, in, like, yeah, engineering, architecture, medicine, right? You start out with some goals, and then you use, you know, empirical science to tell you how to achieve them, right? So the same way that, you know, Kepler is sort of decoding the laws of motion of, you know, heavenly bodies... Um, Marx sees himself as discovering the laws of motion of capitalist economies uh, for the purpose, of course, of helping people understand how they work so they can help to understand how to overcome them and what it would take to overcome them. Um, and, you know, I suggest in the, in the article that, you know, I mean, the sort of main kind of normative drive, right, there are lots of different ways to make a normative argument for, for socialism, that are at least consistent with everything that Marx and Engels say. But I think that the sort of main one they were interested in was removing arbitrary economic obstacles to human flourishing. Okay, so um, thinking about this, this, this Keplerian uh, Spart Spartacist, in, uh, uh, Keplerian Spartacist uh, program, um, and how it relates to... Um, to what uh, to what Marx is doing in Capital, right? And particularly the early chapters of Capital, where he's making the argument that I'm concerned with in this article. Well, you know, I think that what he's doing is in this spirit, this kind of engineering science spirit. He's using the most advanced economic theory of his day, right, of his era, to decipher the structure of capitalist exploitation. So, like. Um, Various non-socialist economists who came before him, the most, most importantly David Ricardo, uh, Marx thought that the value of a commodity, and what that word value means when you really get into it is a huge can of worms. Like intuitively value means like, you know, I mean, it's exchange value, and so intuitively it's like what you can, what something is worth, right? But then... Uh, Marx in the early chapters of Capital is going to make all kinds of distinctions between um, the underlying value of a commodity and its price, right? You know, he's certainly not going to equate those two things, but there's a kind of complex relationship between those two. And in any case, you know, he thinks the uh, value of a commodity, right, is product, like, like Ricardo and other non-socialist economists had thought before him, it's product of the labor time that it takes to produce, uh, I know if you've read Capital, like if you're in the class, you're screaming right now, no, there are like 20 caveats here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like really broad strokes, right? Uh, that's the uh, that's the view we're, we're talking about. We talk about the labor theory of value. So uh, I say in the article, sharpening Ricardo's analysis with his own insights, Marx conceived of value as what he calls the congealed or sometimes like crystallized result of average socially necessary labor time in the abstract Every single one of those caveats matter, um, but <laughs> we're not going to get too much into them here because uh, they're not going to be very important for where we go. Um, but 
the important point is this. If you think about value in this way, the traditional socialist charge against distribution under capitalism, that workers are being exploited, that some of the product of their labor is being taken away in an illegitimate way, is easy to understand. Workers produce value, but capitalists control how much of it is returned to them in their wages. But, like, you know, we're talking at this point, right, so we've got that sort of core charge against capitalism, but it's being expressed in the language of 19th century economics. And like every other area of empirical inquiry, economics has changed a lot since 1867, which was the year the capital was published. Today, most economists would reject the labor theory of value, and crucially, even most professional economists who are normatively, like politically, committed to other Marxist ideas reject that, right? So David Harvey, for example, by far the most popular and influential interpreter of Marx, uh, rejects it. Um, you know, uh, there's, you know, John Romer, right? Very well-known Marxist economist, certainly rejects it. Uh, Mike Beggs, who wrote a really wonderful article in Jacobin, I always recommend people read on this, that I actually quoted this article called Zombie Marx, is a contributing editor to Jacobin. He's an extremely committed socialist. Uh, I'm co-writing a book with him and Bhaskar about feasible socialism called uh, the, uh, the Blueprint, for Verso. Uh, so he's certainly a very committed socialist, but he's also a professional economist and, you know, and, and he rejects it too, right? Like this is, again, as far as I could tell, most people with academic training in economics, uh, even if they are politically committed to other Marxist ideas, uh, aren't very wild about that sort of technical view about value that, you know, value is, abstract average socially necessary labor time that's going to have a complex relationship to price etc um so we could talk a little bit about some of the reasons why so many economists are down on the ltv um you know like in that and why some of the arguments that marx makes for it and capital that are often very impressive to people who's knowledge of economics mostly comes from reading capital, uh, don't sway uh, most modern economists very much, but I'm actually neutral on this, right? I'm an agnostic on the sort of technical economic claims about the labor theory of value. Um, I don't have a position on that one way or the other. I think that the sort of second-order evidence from how many academically trained professional economists, even those who are politically committed to socialism, reject it, I think gives us some reason to worry that it might not be true, but I don't actually take a position on whether or not it is true. What I am interested in, in this article and in today's, you know, Colin, is a slightly different question, not is the labor theory value in that technical economic sense true, but what's the relationship between the labor theory of value and Marx's argument about exploitation? Can at least some of Marx's arguments about exploitation be salvaged even if we're not going to commit ourselves to this sort of 19th century economic assumption? And I think, yeah, I think a lot of what Marx says about it, not about every subject, not about the falling rate of profit, for example, you probably really do need a labor theory of value for that, but a lot of Marx's points about exploitation that he makes in capital, I actually don't think rise or fall on the basis of the um, the labor theory of value. Um, 
you know, just to give you some sense of, of where, you know, like there's an argument that Marx makes at one point, uh, certainly makes it in this little pamphlet that's like a little pre-capital kind of pamphlet called uh, Value, Price, and Profit. Right? I think it's that. It might be Wage, Labor, and Capital. It's one of those where he he says, well, look, the people who think that um, these sort of forces that act on prices of supply and demand uh, are all that explain prices uh, can't explain where the price comes from when those forces are in balance. Um, and, uh, and so there must be some other kind of underlying value that explains that, that, you know, which is something like a, you know, which is the kind of thing people, Marxologists will go back and forth forever about whether this means that Marx is saying that, you know, uh, that, labor time value gives you something like prices in a state of equilibrium or long-term equilibrium or whether that's totally the wrong way to think about what he's saying. But the point, you know, that uh, Mike Beggs makes in Zombie Marx is that this, look, this is a really good argument against some of the economists in the 19th century who disagreed with Ricardo and Marx about uh, labor time value, but it doesn't really impress a lot of contemporary economic economists who are used to thinking and you'll have to ask Mike, you know, rather than me, right, you know, because I'm not a subject matter expert, you know, for like to really unpack this. But he says, you know, they think in terms of uh, supply and demand schedules, right, not of like supply and demand as these like forces that are uh, that are acting on the uh, the price of commodities. OK, so but again, whatever you think is true. Right. So like Lillian Sikaricia. Uh, the last time uh, that I talked to her, I had her come in as a uh, guest lecture for the capital class one day, right? She said she actually does think that there's a version of the labor theory of value that could be defended on reading Amor Sheikh convinced her of that, but she doesn't actually think you need it to make sense of Marx's view of exploitation. And so, again, I'm agnostic on the first question, but I strongly agree with her on the second question um, for GA Cohen-influenced reasons in my case. And let's get into it, right? But first, let's talk. And then after I sort of go through the argument, I see we've got at least one call. I saw a couple others earlier, but I think we've got at least one call right now. So we'll we'll take calls once we've sort of run through the basics of the argument. So it should be just a few more minutes. Um, so I say in the article, Mark spends the first five chapters of Capital analyzing several economic concepts, starting with uh, commodities, money, and value. And then he considers them in relation to capital using these famous three-letter diagrams. So, uh, for example, um, you know, I think he introduces some of this even in, like, Chapter 2. Even a subsistence farmer might sell some of the goods he and his family don't need to buy products they can't make. Uh, That's a chain of transactions that Marx is going to render as CMC, Commodities, Money, Commodities. Right. In other words, you start with some commodities, you exchange it for money, which you then exchange, you know, which Marx thinks is a kind of commodity too. But don't worry about that part right now. Uh, which you exchange for more commodities, right? But the ultimate goal is the accumulation of commodities. But what the capitalist does is the opposite. Um, the uh, the circuit of capital is going to be MCM, right? Money is commodity, money, right? The goal, no less than you know, a uh, a miser. Right, which is a uh, analogy that Marx has a lot of fun with in these early chapters, um, is is just to accumulate more money. Right? Uh, 
while Miser just keeps the money, perhaps filling a swimming pool with gold coins like Scrooge McDuck, the capitalist turns his cash into commodities and turns those commodities into more money. Crucially, not just more money because the value of the money itself has fluctuated, but you know, the M becoming M prime, right? M C M prime, right? Uh, means represents a underlying increase in the store of value held by the individual capitalist. And crucially, right, for some of Marx's analysis here, the overall store of value held by the capitalist class as a whole. Um, so in the case, um, you know, so he, he has, Marx has this wonderful line in uh, capital about how the, uh, the capitalist is like a rational miser or a, uh, or a miser is like a capitalist gone mad, right? You know, because uh, the, you know, the, the goal, um, you know, the, the point of the rationality is that this isn't, you know, this isn't just that like capitalists are all this free, all these like freakish people uh, who have bad souls. So they, you know, they just want to accumulate money. It's that if you're not trying to turn your, uh, M into M prime, right? You know, through that MCM prime cycle, then you're going to be outcompeted by other capitalists who are more dedicated to, to doing that, right? So it's about the incentives that are built into the system itself. Um, so the merchant capitalist uh, is, you know, using money to buy commodities that are then directly resold. The industrial capitalist is using the money to buy capital goods, which are then turned into more commodities. This is all happening within the C and the MCM which is then uh, being turned into M-prime. Okay. Um, but at a crucial point, uh, Marx asked this question, how does the store of value held by the capitalists increase? To be sure, some people are better at business than others, and they could, you know, they're going to be good, so you're the people who are the best businessmen are going to be good at buying cheap and selling dear. But that's a little bit of a separate question from how does the supply, you know, so that might explain how some individual capitalists can turn M into M prime, right? Like how the supply value held by individual capitalists can increase over time. But it doesn't actually tell you anything yet about how the supply of value in society as a whole, right? The supply of value that's been held by the capitalist class as a whole increases over time. Where does the new value come from? And Marx's answer is that a worker's capacity to work or labor power is a special kind of C that has the capacity to turn M into more M in the sense of increasing value. Um, now, uh, at this point in the discussion, I say in the article, any good defender of capitalism will counter the capitalist provides the physical means of production, the factories, equipment, and so on. Isn't the capitalist the source of that value? But as um, Richard Wolff uh, likes to put it, right, the capitalist is ultimately a... Um, you know, is ultimately just an unnecessary middleman in between two groups of workers here, right? One of them's making the factory, you know, building the factories, for example, and the other one's working in those factories. Um, that the structure of capitalism means that you need the capitalist in between, but there's nothing innate, right, about the actual physical production process that requires that. Uh, or Marx's way of making this sort of point, right, is that uh, says that the physical means of production are, source, are one, a source of value only insofar as they're used by workers, and two, that you know, the physical means of production, in, right, to the extent that we're not just talking about you know, things that naturally occur, right, that occur in nature without human intervention, 
are themselves the product of the activity of previous workers. Marx's phrase is that it's dead labor being used by living labor to produce more value. And yet, despite being the source of value, labor is dominated. So there's this wonderful passage at the end of chapter 6 of Capital, Volume 1, where Marx portrays a stylized exchange between the owner of money and the owner of this peculiar commodity, labor power, who meet in a marketplace to exchange their property. So they meet as equals to make this exchange, but then uh, I go into the quote, when we leave this sphere of the exchange of commodities, which provides the free trader Vulgaris with his views, his concepts, and the standard by which he judges the society of capital and wage labor, uh, I'm just going to interject here, like anybody who's read like Jason Brennan's libertarian polemics good socialism knows exactly what he's saying here, right? He only likes to talk about buying and selling, not about employ- labor and employment. Um, but so once we leave the sphere, a certain change takes place, or so it appears in the physiognomy of uh, our dramatis personae. He who previously, uh, he who was previously a muddy owner strides out of front as the capitalist of the possessor of labor power follows as his worker. The one smirks self-importantly and is intent on business. The other is timid and holds back, like someone who has brought his own hide to market and now has nothing to expect but a tanning. I uh, love that line so much. Um, and then, you know, in um, the uh, shortly afterwards, right, you get this famous gargantuan chapter on the working day, which is where finally, right, you get to the class struggle part, right? Like the opening line of the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto, right? I mean, it's not the, you know, the opening line of the introduction is the thing about the specter haunting Europe, but the opening line of the first chapter of the book itself is all hitherto existing history is the history of class struggle. So people are often surprised when they read Capital that it takes chapters and chapters and chapters to get to class struggle. But, you know, when you get it, right, you get it with a vengeance, right? So um, Marx, you know, really gives you a brutal sense of what that tanning looks like in practice in sort of capitalism in its natural state before labor unions and the regulatory state have have sanded off some of the rough edges, right? He talks about half-starved widows giving up their children to toil in the matchmaking industry, working all day and facing very early death because of the industrial process, he writes about groups of desperate workers, their families petitioning local governments to reduce their work time to 18 hours a day, right? That would actually be a reduction at that point. But um, Marx's key analytic point here is that mainstream economists who ignore the class antagonism at the heart of capitalism are obscuring a central element. Um, under each system, what he calls the direct producers, so like peasants under feudalism, uh, slaves and slave systems, uh, proletarians under capitalism, are forced in every case to give up some of their surplus labor. In other words, some of the, t- the time they spend working beyond the part that goes back to meet their own needs to the ruling class. Um, so this coerced, you know... Under feudalism, that coerced transfer of surplus labor is right out in the open. Under different versions of feudal corvée in different countries at different times, it might either be um, that like the peasant is plowing a single field, but they just have to give up some of the grain they're plowing to the the lord's men, you know. Um, uh, or under others, you know, they actually have a. It's actually done in terms of time, right? They have to, you know, spend, they spend, the peasant spends a certain number of days or hours, um, you know, working his own fields and then a certain number of days or hours uh, working the fields of the feudal lord. But either way, 
this transfer of surplus labor is right out of the open. The direct producers under capitalism um, are legally free. Right? Marx has this great phrase about uh, how they're doubly free. Right? They're free in the sense that they're uh, free to make contracts with whoever they want, but they're also free in the um, uh, in the sense that they are free from any means of supporting themselves other than entering into employment contracts where they submit themselves to the will of the capitalist and have to give up some of the products of their labor to the capitalist. But either way, there's the sort of core, um, the core is exploit is this forced transfer of surplus labor time. Um, <coughs> okay. So, Notice that for the last several minutes, I've been talking about Marx's argument, but I haven't never once talked about whether value itself is congealed socially necessary labor time. Um, because I think that like Marx's argument about exploitation doesn't actually rely on that. Right? Um, even if you don't believe that underneath price fluctuations, there's this separate concept that's going to be explanatory of what's going on, or at least explanatory of what's going on once you remove a bunch of other factors called value that's understood in terms of abstract, socially necessary, average labor time. Um, even if you don't believe any of that, right, it is still the case that uh, the direct producers under capitalism, the workers, are um, working a, uh, you know, a certain number, you know, if you just think about the products they produce over the course of the day, right? Like Marx has all these great analogies in Capital about, you know, the you can think of like, um, you know, workers who are making yarn that, like, the ball of part of the ball of yarn is uh, represents their their time for themselves, right? The the time that they're working to to maintain themselves, and then part of it represents the time that's you know uh, producing the this, you know, the value that's under the control of the capitalist, you can just say, well, look, just think, just leave value out of it. Just talk about prices. It would still be the case that workers are making a certain amount of yarn, which is then going to be sold for a certain price, and that some of it is returned to the workers and wages, and some of it is under the control of the capitalist, and the capitalist can either reinvest it uh, or, you know, keep it in profits, uh, you know, keep it in take-home profits. Um, and the you know crucial point is that workers don't have any say in that process, and so I think the real question about whether this is going to be exploitation, right? Whether this is going to be um, transfer of surplus labor due to pure relationships of class domination, is the real question is going to be is it going to be about value at all? The real question is going to be about coercion. So it is 1989 book, History, Labor, and Freedom. G.A. Cohen um, uh, has this, this essay, um, The uh, Labor Theory of Value and the Concept of Exploitation, uh, where it points out that there's this interesting disconnect that, you know, while most economists, including even many contemporary Marxist economists, reject the labor theory of value, rank-and-file socialists always feel, often feel as if the labor theory of value is just obviously true. So what's, what explains this disconnect? Well, the labor theory of value, as Marx inherited it from Ricardo and sharpened it with his own analytic contributions, might or might not be true, but it certainly isn't obvious, right? To begin with, the relationship between value and price that Marx postulated is complicated. Um, the, a whole series of facts about competition and supply and demand pressures 
can, according to Marx, carry the actual market price of a commodity far away from its underlying value. But Marx thinks there's some sense in which prices are a kind of distorted reflection of labor time value, but that's a complicated economic analysis. Again, maybe it's true and maybe it's not, but it's certainly not obviously true. Now, I do say this view is not as easy to refute as barstool libertarians tend to assume. And I have a link in the uh, article to one of those barstool libert- people I'm calling barstool libertarians, which uh, in this case uh, is an article on the um, Foundation for Economic Education website um, by uh, Stephen uh, Horowitz, uh, who is um, the Distinguished Professor of Free Enterprise at the Department of Economics at Ball State University, but you know he's certainly arguing like a barstool libertarian. Um, you know, big, and he he like trots out all these silly arguments like, uh, well, if, you know, if, if it was really value was really a product of labor time, then if you know, then products would be more valuable if they were made by particularly slow workers. Ha ha ha! Dumb as shit shows that he did make it even a couple pages into Capital. Uh, because if he had, he'd know that Marx uh, sees value stemming from the social average, what he calls like the collective social working day, right? Everybody who's working within an economy, um, which includes the interconnected global economy, right? You know, it's the it's the average, right, for that time and place, like whatever's interconnected at that time and place that, you know, that gives you the that average socially necessary um, labor time. Still, for reasons that we went over a little bit earlier, I won't go over again now, I want to wrap this up uh, so we can get to some calls. Even the non-strawman version doesn't persuade most contemporary economists. Again, I'm neutral about whether they're right not to be persuaded, but I am interested in the conceptual relationship between labor theory value, concept of exploitation. Um, So Cohen uh, believed that the rank-and-file socialists who think the labor theory value is just obvious are moved by something other than Marx's technical claims about value. Instead, what moves them is something like a labor theory of things that have value, which really is obviously true, right? I mean, that really is just kind of a tautology. Uh, Regardless of what value is, no commodity that has value has ever been the product of anything except some combination of A, the non-human natural world, and B, human labor. And once that's in place, I think the entire analysis given, you know, above, right, the uh, from capital still applies. Um, you know, so I just want to finish by going through quickly some of the uh, counterpoints that are made often by defenders of capitalism and how Cohen's contribution can help show why those are false. Also a little bit of Schweikart, but mostly Cohen, and why it really is true that the sort of surplus labor time produced uh, by workers is involuntarily transferred to the capitalist, that we really can reasonably call this exploitation. So pro-capitalist economists uh, like to talk about land, labor, and capital as independent factors that all contribute to production, and they say that, therefore, the disconnect between the part of the firm's revenues that goes to workers' wages and the part that is is kept by the capitalist is actually unobjectionable. After all, workers only supply one of those three factors, and it's being appropriately valued. But if capital means the share of society's resources above and beyond what's present in unaltered nature used in production... We already went over that. That's just dead labor. Um, It hardly changes the fact that workers, right, the working class as a whole, doesn't control the product of their labor. We're just talking about a different group of workers having produced that stuff. Of course, capitalists sometimes do managerial labor themselves, but that doesn't mean that manager and capitalist aren't distinct roles. In a small enough business, the 
Odor might sweep the place up herself at closing time, but that doesn't mean make the role of the capitalist the same as the role of the janitor. Um, fine, a defender of capitalists could argue, but aren't capitalists still making an important contribution by hiring the managers who oversee the production process? Well, yes and no, right? Some managerial labor wouldn't really be necessary if workers controlled the means of production and their incentives were different. Some of it still would be. It's necessary sort of technical or coordinating uh, roles. But any managers who are performing useful tasks, tasks that would be useful even under socialism, could be hired by a workers' committee as easily as by a capitalist. As Cohen puts it in Karl Marx's Theory of History, what's socially necessary is, is what is being delegated, not who's doing the delegating, right? Not the capitalist who happens to be empowered by existing social structures to do the delegating. And when it comes to land, I think the equivocation of this argument is even more obvious. Does ownership of land somehow contribute to production? I mean, it does in the sense that the owner permits production to take place, but if that counts, right, then the Soviet bureaucrat who's signing off on some project uh, is making a useful contribution to production by allowing it to go forward. They're, you know, in a absolute monarchy where the king has to grant individual approval to every productive act of his kingdom, which would be really inefficient. But if, if you imagine such a system, the king too is usefully contributing. I mean, the land itself makes a valuable contribution, but that doesn't refute the Marxist charge that it's exploitative for workers not to control the output of their labor. Uh, so radical scholar and mathematician and you know, economic thinker David Schweikart argues in his book After Capitalism um, he's got this great line about how unless the idea is that some of the crops produced by the combination of land and agricultural labor are going to be burned as a sacrifice to the god of land, the land's contribution is pretty irrelevant to questions of distribution and who's being exploited. In the same vein, G.A. Cohen argues that it doesn't matter for the charge of exploitation whether auto workers, for example, are directly producing value or they're just producing cars that have value and transporting the cars and selling them. If anything, not routing Marxist analysis of exploitation through 19th century assumptions about equilibrium prices, I know that's exegetically controversial, um, just simplifies the issue and sharpens Marx's original analogy between feudalism and capitalism. As with feudal peasants, workers are deprived of control over their product, and hence whatever price it fetches if the person who does control it sells it. Um, okay, two last points before we go to calls. First, to be clear, neither Marx nor Cohen thinks that workers should receive the entire product of their labor. Nobody who's seriously thought about it thinks that. Uh, a lot of times socialists will talk that way, but that's just because they haven't thought about it enough. And I think if you press them with some objections, they would say something more careful and reasonable, like workers should you know, have a democratic input into, how, you know, into what happens to the product of their labor. So Marx, in Critique of the Gotha Program, argues this would be both impractical, and he doesn't put it this way, but this is clearly what he's saying, morally wrong, for a variety of reasons. Right? Starting with the impracticality, what about the upkeep of old factory equipment or building new factories? Right? The society isn't going to last for very long right? if some of the product of labor isn't set aside for purposes like that. And look, what about common needs like schools and hospitals or the consumption needs of those who are unable to work? What makes the surrender of value, some of the value produced by workers or the value of the commodities they produce, right? um, you know, the surrender of some of the, some of the products they're producing exploitation, 
is that it's surrendered not in some democratic process in which the beneficiaries have to make a convincing case that they need they need it, but it's just taken as a result of the raw power of one class over another. So the real question about exploitation isn't actually going to be about the theory of value at all. The real question is going to be whether the part of the value controlled by the capitalist is voluntarily surrendered by the worker or is just taken as a result of these relations of class domination. Uh, Cohen argues that the labor theory of value being true would do nothing to strengthen the charge of exploitation. To see why not, let's assume a different theory of value, a very simple version of a marginalist account of value where value is produced by the desire of the consumers. Well, even if you assume that for the sake of argument, does that somehow give the consumers a right to the things they desire? That, of course not. Right? The real issue is not what produces the value of the products. The real issue is who produces the products themselves. And, you know, I mean, any, if anybody has a right to the value um, based on their relationship with the products, right, you know, then, or at least right to more of a say of what happens to the value based on that, it's the people who make them. And the real question is whether the arrangements by which those products come under the control of separate capitalists are ones the workers accept of their own free will. So, are they? And that's the last question that's considered in the article. So libertarian philosopher Robert Nozick argued that somebody could only be coerced to do something if their property rights are being violated somehow. Cohen has this brilliant 1983 paper, The Structure of Proletarian Unfreedom, where he argues this gets things backwards and not just because libertarian theories of property rights are dumb as shit. Uh, that's my phrase, not G.A. Cohen's. We can and should establish that something is coercive before we ask uh, whether anything could justify that coercion. Um, a serial killer, for example, being kept in prison away from society is being forced, right, is being coerced, and that's a good thing, right? Like, we have to, you know, like, whether coercion is going on is a separate question from whether the coercion is justified. Um, nor does it do any good to say that the worker with no realistic ability to start a business of his own, which most people can't do, uh, has at least some other choices besides going to work for a capitalist, that the worker can, Cohen's phrases, go on the dole or beg or simply make no provision for himself and trust a fortune. I mean, by parity of reasoning, you might as well say a bank teller faced, uh, forced with a gun to her head to give up the code to the safe. Is it really being forced? Because she had the option of, you know, wrestling away the gun and probably giving her life for the bank, but, you know, at least, like, taking a shot at it. Uh, when we say that somebody is forced to do something, Cohen points out, we don't generally mean they had literally no other choices. We mean that they had no acceptable choices. So Cohen thinks the best argument against the claim that workers are forced to submit to the rule of capitalists and hence forced to give up part of the product of their labor, you know, the part of the product of their labor that isn't under their control, right? So the argument he takes much more seriously than this kind of Nozick argument is the simple fact of upward mobility. Some workers, even some who start in really desperate positions, as like new immigrants from poor countries, are eventually able to claw their way up through the economic hierarchy to a slightly higher position by, you know, for example, starting small businesses of their own. So he says this is the most serious consideration against the Marxist claim of proletarian unfreedom, uh, but he still doesn't find it fully convincing. Here's why not, and this will be the last point for real. It's structurally impossible for everyone in a complex modern economy to own their own little business. Either the labor force will collectively control the means of production, right? You know, workers or communities as a whole, 
or they'll be dominated by capitalists who can then extract their surplus labor, the labor that goes towards meeting their own, not towards meeting their own needs, but you know the rest of that ball of yarn, right? The remainder of the firm's revenues, which whether kept by the capitalists or reinvested, either way, it's outside of the workers' control. So Cohen writes, capitalism requires a substantial hired labor force, which would cease to exist if more than a few workers rose. This means that even if um, there are, are a few lifeboats, the working class is tr- you know, collectively trapped aboard the wage labor ship. So he's got this uh, great analogy. Here's another quote from that paper, The Structure of Proletarian Unfreedom. Cohen writes, 10 people are placed in a room, the only exit from which is huge and heavy locked door. At various distances from each lies a single heavy key. Whoever picks up this key, and each is physically able with varying degrees of effort to do so, and takes it to the door, will find, after considerable self-application, a way to open the door and leave the room. But if he does, uh, but if he does so, he alone will be able to leave it. Uh, photoelectric devices installed by a jailer ensure that it will open just enough to permit one exit, that it will close again, and no one inside the room will be able to open it again. So I end the article by saying... There is a sense in which any of Cohen's prisoners can escape, but there's also a clear sense in which they're collectively unfree. A prisoner in Cohen's hypothetical room, like a worker under capitalism, might be able to make their individual escape, but they cannot escape with their fellow prisoners. The only way for workers to be free to all escape together, Cohen says, is for them to achieve a deeper kind of freedom, freedom from class society. All right. Um, I have a call. Uh, if anybody else wants me to get them before I go, just get in the queue now, and I'll make sure that I get whoever's in the queue when we uh, finish up talking to Chase. Uh, but I'm going to uh, start off with Chase. What is on your mind? Hey, Ben. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Um, yeah, uh, that, that, was, that was all awesome. Um, I, I guess I first off start by saying that I guess I would be more convinced or more worried uh, about the status of labor theory of value uh, being looked down upon by most economists. If economists were part of a a different discipline, Mm. Um, had a, you know, that had a a stronger record of being right. in uh, (laughs) history. Um, You know, it's, uh, I mean, you're in the philosophical, uh, departments yeah. of colleges, and I'm sure you are aware of how intellectual life is subject to fads, and economists yeah. have the extra burden of having to run apologetics for the bourgeoisie. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so there's a lot of different uh, distorting forces um, in it, even if it wants to claim to be the uh, queen of the social sciences. Um, I guess... I, I, I guess I had two points. One is yeah. that um, I agree with you that uh, you do not need the labor theory of value to get to where we want to go. Um, yeah. To a socialist political project. Um, but I, I don't even know if you really need a theory of exploitation. Um, mm-hmm. because even if you have a theory of exploitation, as you just showed, um, you know, it's not immediately clear that that's convincing that therefore we should have a political economy that doesn't have exploitation, you're still going to have people who say that exploitation can be justified. Um, if not, mm-hmm. still not on the basis of the labor theory of value. And um, uh, 
Um, so you're still having to sort of squeeze an ought from an is in each case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my last point is, um, and you already touched on it a little bit, mm-hmm. um, I can't recommend Anwar Shaikh's work enough. Um, mm-hmm. His 2016 book, uh, Capitalism, uh, Competition, Conflict, and Census, I think is the title, yeah. um, is really superb. And he does make a very good, I think, intuitive argument for the connection between labor uh, value and price, ultimately. And mm-hmm. it's more complicated than this, but he just notes pretty simply um, that Marx himself noted that uh, profit wasn't solely uh, derived from uh, labor. It could also mm-hmm. happen in exchange. That's the only way you could have merchant capital is yeah. if uh, somebody was buying buying goods at a lower price than they were willing to sell them to some later person. Um, and um, and the labor being contributed to um, any commodity, um, you know, you, when you go down sort of the, um, uh, the supply chain, um, you're uh, congealing more and more labor that uh, was already contributed to a, uh, a previous um, run in the formation of a commodity. So, you know, yeah. if you're building a computer, it's not just the labor of the person putting together the, uh, connecting the hard drive and the motherboard. It's all the way down to the people who uh, mined the silicone and coltan uh, mm-hmm. that goes into the circuitry, you know, and every step along the way is contributing to labor. And, you know, I can't, uh, I can't give a, um, uh, a quick, uh, you know, mathematically yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. defense of, uh, Shike's argument, but he claims to show that, m- uh, you, you pretty much can account for, um, all of, uh, what goes into the price of a commodity by taking account of the vertically integrated labor and the labor, which is, sort of exchanged just through uh, mm. merchant capital. So, but yeah, that's all, that's all I really had to, to bring cool. up. Cool, yeah. Uh, so I, I haven't read Shake. I want to, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd certainly take your recommendation and Lillian's recommendation seriously. Um, I think in terms of the, you know, in terms of the higher order evidence from like the views of, of economists, I agree with you that it is undermined to some extent by the sort of political shape of, you know, economics as discipline, you know, certainly, you know, since the Cold War. Um, and, you know, that that does undermine it. How much it undermines it is a, is a tricky question. That's part of why I emphasize that even a lot of, like, sort of academically trained economists who are politically committed to Marxism are still, you know, are, are still unconvinced by it. Now you could argue that, well, okay, but they, they, um, they're just sort of, you know, they're just sort of influenced by this being part of this discipline, which has this, you know, which is ultimately, you know, has these like not intellectually respectable reasons for, for wanting to reject it. And maybe, right. I mean, like, I, I think that's hard to judge. Um, I, you know, I think that, you know, the most interesting issue to me that, you know, that you raised in your call is about sort of like, okay, but like, why, why does it matter? Right. Like, you know, like, why do we need, uh, why do we need a theory of, of exploitation or do we need a theory of exploitation? Um, and I agree with you that there would be, there's a sense in which we don't, right. There's a sense in which, um, 
you can, um, you know, you can make a case for socialism without it because there are a thousand good, you know, normative objections to capitalism. So you could just go with the other 999, right? You know, uh, uh, I, I totally see your point about that. I think that the, uh, all I would say is that I think that like, I don't want to give up on number 1000 either. Cause I actually think it's like a pretty intuitively powerful objection, right? That the, um, that like, why should, uh, I mean, I, I think there's a reason why this sort of charge that the way distribution works under capitalism is, is exploitative in the Marxist sense has been such a big part of sort of socialist rhetoric, right. You know, mm-hmm. over the decades and centuries, you know, that like, like think about like the lyrics to uh, solidarity forever, right. You know, we stand outcast and starving with the wonders that we have made, right. You know, we laid the railroad tracks, et cetera, et cetera. Like there is something really powerful. I think about that idea that like, look under capitalism, the people who actually sweat to create, you know, these, these, these profits um, don't get to, you know, don't get to enjoy the results, right. That like that, uh, and not for, not because like, not in the sense they might not get to enjoy the full results even under socialism because we'd, you know, any form of socialism still worth wanting would would have, you know, a giant welfare state or, you know, if we're imagining some sort of really advanced communism with no markets or money, the equivalent of a giant welfare state like Marx has kind of laid out in the uh, critique of the Gotha program. So, you know, people aren't getting the full value, but like they're not, you know, like there's something about the, I think there's something about the idea that like, hey, this is incredibly fucked up that like I'm gonna make this cake for you, and that I don't even get a say in how in how this you know in how the slices are cut and how how big a slice I get, right? And this and this person who didn't really do anything gets to decide how it's cut up, and they only leave me a little slice, and they just you know gorge themselves with the rest of it, right? That like you know Jeff Bezos gets to buy his own spaceship because of the literally backbreaking labor that's done in Amazon warehouses. You know, I think that's a I think that's a powerful idea, and I think that's worth sort of keeping in the keeping in the um, uh, the ideological arsenal. Uh, I mean, the point about squeezing it off from it is, I mean, I get what you're saying, but I think that there's, I think that's like a very winnable fight, right? Like that the, I mean, you're right. I mean, because ultimately, right, any points, that, you know, because of the point that you know Cohen himself makes that we can establish that something is coercion before we ask whether the coercion is justified. Um, you know, you could, you could, in theory, right, you could accept the entire sort of descriptive Marxist analysis of exploitation and, and say, but that's great, right? It's, it's good. Right. right. You know, it's good that this is coercively transferred. But I think that's, uh, that's going to be pretty implausible in terms of most human beings' underlying values, right? I think that the... Uh, I mean, if you can convince yourself of some absolutely insane libertarian normative premises, then maybe you could, you know, talk yourself into it, right? Yeah. But I think that that's, you know, this is kind of the point that I'm always making about, like, kind of the value of debate with people with, like, totally different worldviews and, and really foreign value systems and all this stuff that, like, you know, it's like that that Elizabeth Brunig line I was quote about how half the point of a debate is to get the other guy to tell you what he really thinks, you know, that like, uh, you know, you could say like, I think if, you know, I mean, I think the normative debate is worth having because if what it exposes is that, you know, 
like this fundamental divergence in values where you, you know, some people have a value system where if you're like, you know, working people to the point where they, they can't, um, uh, you know, where they have to, uh, you know, skip bathroom breaks and pee into a jar and, uh, and their boss makes it out, you know, like, and their boss accumulates, right, so much surplus for that that he can buy his own, you know, spaceship, uh, and, and they don't really have a choice in the matter. They're being forced, right? And if you can get somebody to say, yeah, and that's great, right, I think they've kind of discredited themselves in the eyes of, you know, of most, um, of most listeners, right? So I think that, like, it is true that, sure, you can, you can never get the ought right straight from the is, right? There's always some sort of underlying appeal to values, right? But I think that the, I think the underlying values you're appealing to are sort of basic and, uh, and widely shared enough for that to be, that to seem like a very winnable fight to me. That would be my, that would be my case for bothering with exploitation. Um, also, you know, Marx is right in, in those parts of capital is just really beautiful. And, you know, um, I just really like sharing that, but, no, I, I agree with pretty much everything you uh, you just said, and I think it is worth preserving uh, arguments around exploitation, even if the labor theory of value uh, wasn't sound. Um, I think it only matters for um, for a project of trying to construct um, a left wing alternative economics mm-hmm. discipline. Um, you know, and it may or may not be true, even in that case. But I think it's solely, uh, it, it's solely just a technical economics mm-hmm. uh, um, argument. You know, uh, about if it is true or is not true that the uh, the price of a commodity can be tracked with its value over time, its labor value over time. Um, you know, whether socialist politics fall fo- yeah, follows from that yeah, yeah. Uh, is almost neither here nor there. Um, but, uh, I appreciate you taking my call here, Ben. Yeah, of course. All right. Uh, I'm going to grab Jonathan's call that that's probably going to have to be it for today. Jonathan, what's on your mind? Hi there. I just heard the talk about Jeff Bezos. Uh, just FYI, Jonathan, what's, what's oh, on your mind? Well, it was something about the year 2020 producing like 17 new billionaires and, <laughs> 12 of them didn't do like the most famous ones whose names you know are not even the worst ones because 12 of those 17 made their money doing financial arbitrage they just front run trades they don't produce anything they just move numbers around on a screen and all that money stays in the financial sector and as far as Jeff Bezos goes like a lot of the profitability of his worker exploitation comes from the fact that he's piggybacking on the back of publicly built things like not only the roads on which his truck delivers their goods to your door, but the phone in my hand right now is using publicly built infrastructure to communicate with you, but I'm still paying rents mm-hmm. to people like Bill Gates to be able to use that. And that a sort of, there's a big difference between the surplus value of my labor that goes to my boss and the larger loss these days is what I nominally keep mm. on my paycheck, but it goes out on the first of the month, not just a literal rent, but if you understand monopoly pricing power as a type of rent extraction, that goes mostly there too. If COVID tosses anything, is that if we get more money, the price of everything will be adjusted up to recapture that money. 
even if it was only mm -hmm. a one-time payment, they'll adjust prices as if we're going to keep receiving that much every month because they're all obsessed with seizing it immediately because quarterly profits are indicative of futures uh, options and how, how much money is going to flow into their stock price, etc., etc. And that the labor of theory of value not being sound does have, it does matter. Because it's just a, it's a very super, literally superficial method of, mm -hmm. of rent extraction if you're rent extracting the value of the labor from the person. But it just so happens in the United States of America that the capitalist and the landlord are often the same person. But there are instances where the capitalist and the labor is the same person and it's the landlord who exploits even from capital. So it's a three-tiered system, not a two-tiered system, and that does matter. Which is why I don't like Marx being the beginning and the end of leftism. Just uh -huh. so I'm not obstinate towards all leftism. There's someone way further left than him I like much more, named uh, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who thinks that property, like proprietorship itself, is a kind of theft. And in a place where land is an inelastic resource and ownership of it is falling into fewer fewer hands, I think that strikes much closer to the root of the problem. Another author named Henry George sees that as the root of the problem, too. His solutions are different, but they agree on where the real problem is. I got a sort of price-fixing pagoda that I, I, I did on Brianna Joy Gray's show. Mm -hmm. I called in there. It's like, oh, I have a gas station opened in town that dropped the price of gas. Ten cents, say. But that means that ten cents of every gallon in my town wasn't going to labor, wasn't going to capital, wasn't going to natural resources. It was going somewhere else. They're basically a little mini, a mini-gark was renting us access to gasoline. It's rent extraction. And then that's just the municipal level. The state mm -hmm. level, in my state, Iowa, has heavily to do with ethanol subsidies. And that's a whole other rabbit hole about how it ruins the topsoil, etc., etc. But it suffice to say that the price is fixed at that level. And then at the national level, the real reason wasn't COVID or Ukraine or anything like that. It's people at ports using futures on commodities that they're importing and futures on their own companies. They're buying calls and then gouging. Oh, it'll only be $10,000 per crate to unload your boat. And if you're going to pay it in the moment, and then they get the gouge twice. They get the gouge, and then they get it on their call times 10. And that's the national level. And then there's an international level, which is OPEC. They don't want to supply hiccup in Turkey to interrupt the price in Belgium. So that's four layers of price fixing, which I pay after I get my paycheck. After, not uh. before, like Marx, but after. So rent capture and the feudalism, not capitalism, the feudalistic nature, the serfdom that we live in is a more terse and pithy analysis than Marx was capable of doing. He didn't see a world with 8 billion people in it. He didn't see a world with Nixon's um, modern monetary mechanics. The end of Bretton Woods, so, the beginning or the end of Bretton Woods, like it's yeah. I don't. I think Marx is up. Yeah. So good. okay. Well, I, I am curious about that last point, right? And so, so I'm just gonna. I, I just want to give a question back to you, and then I'm probably just gonna let you get the last word on this and and uh, wrap up the episode. But um, so, if you're right about all that, right about everything that you just laid out, right? Does that does that mean that um um does that mean that Marx is wrong about the extraction of value from workers by capitalists at the port of production? No, or does that just no or does that just mean it's, it's got no sense of scope? Does that like, just you know, mean that it's 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 incomplete, right? Like is 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 that a 
Is that an instead or is that an also? If I'm squirting you with a squirt gun in the middle of a hurricane and you're complaining about the squirt gun, it's like you got no sense of proportion. That's marks. Okay. It's okay. Not wrong, exactly. But like I was the one who types down there in the comments. I'm like, this is David Ricardo's theory of rents, and you're applying it to labor or to wages because labor is like renting a person. So yeah, that's not wrong, not exactly. But it's a, the much smaller problem, especially. Right. So that's so that's that's useful, right? I think that that's. Um... You know, maybe um, you know, maybe we could kind of leave people with that, right? Because that's that. Because I think we've at least got into the the nub of your disagreement with um, with Marxists, right? The part that's actually disagreement, right? Because it's it's not yeah. that you're, um, you know, because because for the I South, don't need you to be wrong for me to be right. I don't. Need that sure, no, that's that's fine. I'm just saying, like, uh, well, I I just I was just gonna like sort of highlight the part where I think you're identifying what might be a real disagreement and then we could just kind of leave it to people to think about, which is that um, the, okay, so it's it's the, you know, the sort of Marxist analysis of exploitation isn't necessarily wrong according to you, right? But the question, the question that might be a dispute, the question that's, that's worth sort of reflecting on is... Um, is that the is that the squirt, squirt gun or is that the hurricane? Right. I mean, is is that like right. right at the center of the problem or is that like a sort of sideshow to the center of the problem? Uh, which is you know which is I think a extremely interesting uh, question uh, and one that's certainly worth getting into in the future. But um, but I think for the sake of uh, of relative brevity, been going for a little over an hour. Uh, we're going to leave it at that. So that was an extremely interesting call. Um, I know to, to sort of shore up his point a little bit that like as prominent to Marxist as Slavoj Zizek has said very similar things, um, about sort of thinking that like intellectual property rents are, are sort of a, a bigger, a bigger deal these days. Um, you know, whether I necessarily think that the caller and Slavoj are right about that as a, uh, as they say, is a whole other thing. But I did promise to give him the last word on the subject, so I'm going to keep that promise and, and leave it there. Um, okay, uh, coming attractions. Uh, tomorrow we are going to do yet another call-in episode. We're going to have David Griscom on uh, to talk about his debut article in Jacobin, which is about climate politics in Texas. That's going to be at 4 p.m. Texas time, 5 p.m. real time, right? God's time zone, Eastern Standard. Uh, tomorrow... Um, and, uh, and then, uh, on Monday on the main show on YouTube, uh, starting at eight, uh, we're going to get into some of the, um, uh, the, uh, we're going to watch just a little bit. We're going to do a real breakdown on Thursday, but we're going to watch and talk about just a little bit of Kyle Kalinske's debate with Jordan Peterson. We're going to talk a little bit about who funds project Veritas and why James O'Keefe uh, kept dodging my question about that. Uh, during my debate with him. Uh, and I'm going to be talking to uh, my good friend, Sean Richmond, labor organizer, writer, uh, professor, um, about his new essay, which came out in Jacobin, because about uh, the show Mad Men and the surprising points of connection between it and uh, and uh, leftist ideas, right? Some like Sweezy and people like that's ideas about monopoly capitalism, which sort of sounds like a weird couple things to juxtapose but you'll be surprised so that's coming up on monday uh but uh meanwhile uh 
So we're going to leave that out for today. So again, tomorrow at five on Colin, we've got David Griscom, um, and uh, and then uh, the main show on YouTube on Monday. We've got Sean Richmond. So all good stuff coming up. Uh, thank you everybody, and thank you for uh, the two calls, which were both really interested and thought provoking. And I will see you guys tomorrow. Left is best. <laughs>